Uh, This morning, as we take a journey through the Word, I will be appealing to you as Bereans to make sure that you are truly lovers of the truth. What I'm going to present this morning will challenge some of your preconceived ideas. It is completely intended to do that. Because, as Abraham Lincoln said, information is power. And for you who believe that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, I want you to understand. So, if after I present this message you would like to visit with me, I will do my best to make time. But I most certainly challenge you to examine the subject matter and see if it's in context and principled and proper and true to history and the scriptures. Let's pray. Lord, unless you build the house, we labor in vain. But if you build the house, then you watch over the city. And so, Lord, I'm praying this morning that we won't turn to the left or to the right and that we will prosper in everything we do, even if we suffer for your name's sake and the truth's sake. So now, Lord, I pray... May we humble ourselves before you so that you need not humble us. And I pray, may we remember that those that humble themselves, you lift up. Now, Lord, show us our duty, our privilege, and our prerogative in Jesus' name. Amen. Title my message, The Beast in the Ballot Box, Christians and Christian Nationalism at the End. Now, usually... While the special music is playing, I'm kneeling just around the corner praying. Blessed by the music and looking forward to coming and standing before you. And as I said in first service, I can't make this stuff up. So while I'm kneeling, listening to Brother Carlos play in the first service, my phone, which was not set to silent mode, goes off. When I'm done praying, I read this. Urgent, capital letters. Your absentee ballot has not been returned. And then it goes on to tell me that uh, in this case, one side of the election crew is hoping for me, but it's not Republican, in case you wondered, okay? Um, Some people would like to suggest that's what we are here, which is not an identifier for this group of people. And before this sermon is done, I hope you understand you are not to align yourself with a political party. All it does is get in the way of giving the message of Christ. But we are to align ourselves with truth because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. All right, let's make the journey. Let's see where we end up. The beast in the ballot box. Christians and Christian nationalism at the end. This sermon was preached as the most controversial sermon that I've ever preached from this pulpit. It was preached last December 4, and it had over 10,000 views before they broke it out of the four or five hours of programming. Then our social media team breaks it out And it's watched in its 50 or 60 minutes or whatever it was, and it had another 23,000 views. Then another online service got a hold of it, and it had over 210,000 views. Why do I bring that up to you? Because in this sermon, I suggested that if there was a moral imperative about religious liberty and liberty of conscience, and people stood silent on the sidelines when they were supposed to do something, that it was an act of cowardice. Now, I want to tell you, the people I heard from the most that didn't like the sermon were some of my fellow pastors, not at Village. And you know, I had one administrator tell me that I called him a coward, and I had to tell him what I told every other one of the pastors who didn't like it. You're not a coward if there's no moral imperative, but if there is a moral imperative and you do nothing, that my friend, is 
cowardice. That sentiment will be true relative to this message here today as well. If there is no moral imperative, then when we're all done this morning and you don't agree with what was said and you don't do anything, that's between you and God. But if there is a moral imperative and you don't do anything, that, my friend, is dereliction of Christian duty and it is disloyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. A year ago, it was the issue of coercion. I said it multiple times. I'll say it again. This church was never against vaccination. It was only against the brutality of tyranny in the form of coercion about stewarding your own body temple. In other words, you shouldn't lose your job. You shouldn't lose your academic abilities. You shouldn't lose your lifelong earnings because you lose your livelihood. As the Bible said in the book of Deuteronomy, no one was to take the upper millstone from someone. So taking somebody's job because they didn't want to receive a shot certainly principally was attached there. We're not out of the woods, friends, and we're not going to be out of the woods for a good little while. As a matter of fact, it might be that the future holds a few more rounds of standing up and with dignity and courtesy speaking up and doing your part. We'll see what happens. Ellen White wrote, the greatest and most favored nation upon the earth is the United States. A gracious providence has shielded this country and poured upon her the choicest of heaven's blessings. Here the persecuted and oppressed have found refuge. Here the Christian faith and its purity has been taught. The people have been the recipients of great light and unrivaled mercies. What I want you to understand is that while this country is not perfect, restructuring its history as one that is primarily flawed as opposed to primarily blessed is doing great travesty to the words of inspiration. And while there are mistakes in our past, and some of them are societal, and some of them still remain with us, of which Christians should be, a voice, salt, and light, to re retrofit the story of this nation into modern social construct is wrong. But these gifts have not been repaid. These gifts have been repaid by ingratitude and the forgetfulness of God. The infant one keeps a reckoning with the nations, and their guilt is proportioned to the light rejected. A fearful record now stands in the register of heaven against our land, but the crime which shall fill up the measure of her iniquity is that of making void the law of God. Let's just make sure we read the quote right. It says, the crime which shall fill up the measure of her iniquity is that of making void the law of God. I'm just curious, friends, how many commandments are there in Exodus chapter 20? Could you put a word on your lips? There's 10. Making void the law of God, while it will be tantamount and paramount in the fourth commandment, is not the only law of God this country has been making void, and it's not the only law that Christians should be concerned with, because in this country, law is king. But there is a time coming when we shall be filled up, and maybe we're getting there. The time has come when judgment has fallen in the streets, she writes, and equity cannot enter. And he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. But the Lord's arm is not shortened that it cannot save, and his ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. I want to tell you there are champions of religious liberty who are paying a very high price for simply communicating that in America, while we're dealing with experiments like an emergency use authorization, nobody should be compelled to lose something over not wanting to take something. And I can tell you that yesterday morning, I don't know exactly what happened, but one of those champions was in harm's way for standing for what they believe. The people of the United States have been a favored people, but when they restrict religious liberty, when they surrender Protestantism and give countenance to popery, the measure of their guilt will be full and national apostasy will be registered in the books of heaven. The result of this apostasy will be national ruin. We are on the way. I want you to know about our people. There are some who are not properly versed in the history of this great faith. 
But it's exceptionally important to me that you know the truth because the truth will set you free. James Wright wrote quite an editorial in the Review and Herald, 1862. In his famous editorial, The Nation, White revealed America's place in prophecy and identified slavery as the darkest and most damning sin upon the nation. That's a quote. He predicted that the nation would drink of God's wrath as punishment for the sin of slavery. Was he right or was he wrong? He was right. 600,000 people spilled their blood. 600,000. At one point in time, it was more than all the casualties of all the wars that America has ever fought. There was a reason. Unfortunately, we still have dynamics of discrimination that take place in our society and sometimes even in our church, God forbid. In Christ, there is no East or West. In Christ, it is not the outward package. It is the inward covenant with God that makes me a brother and a sister to you or you to me, as I share a love for Christ. And we cannot carry the vestiges of these types of damnable sins. Ella White wrote, great men professing to have human hearts have seen slaves almost naked and starving and have abused them and sent them back to their cruel masters, hopeless bondage. What is she talking about? The Fugitive Slave Act. There were people in the North that were actually returning escaped slaves to the South, and Ellen White and the leaders of our church projected a dynamic of civil disobedience. We, as a people, were not encouraged to do this, and she considers it a travesty that we would be calling for a day of fasting and prayer while we're returning the escapees from a life of bondage to their former owners. They've deprived them of their liberty and free air, which heaven has never denied them. Praise God and then left them to suffer for food and clothing. In view of all this, a national fast is proclaimed. Oh, what an insult to Jehovah. I don't think I've read words more biting and maybe getting as close to sarcasm from a prophet as these. It was said by our prophet, which I don't put the quote on the screen, but I could find it for you or you could find it yourself this afternoon, that if you hang on to these discriminatory beliefs and you cannot imbibe and participate in the abolitionist understanding of freedom for all, you ought not to hold membership in the Seventh-day Adventist church. This is our history, and we ought to be a little bit proud of it. That boat, the Morning Star, which went up and down the riverways of the south, was built up here not far from Allegan, floated down the river onto the, onto the lake. It was buffeted by a storm, which the captain said should have sunk it, but God had a plan for that morning star, and it was to give great light. We have been in the front of moral issues, at least most of the time. You see, Seventh-day Adventists have not exempted themselves from dialogues, which, yes, indeed, the politicians take up, for indeed, slavery was a political issue, but it did not keep the church from speaking to the moral issue without using the political machinery overly. And what I want everybody to understand here today is that there is an issue coming up on Tuesday in regards to the life of the unborn, which is a moral issue, and voting is a civil liberty, and it is not aligning oneself with a political side, except for those that view the entirety of the world through political eyeglasses. And you need to stop and think about that. We're Christians. We fly above that. For some people, the only power they know is position and political maneuvering. But Christians fly above that. And if someone wants to, if someone wants to silent dissent, one of the best ways they've found to do it in the modern age is to call a pastor who talks about a moral issue, a politician, or delving into political realms. They do not know our Adventist history and our roots. Joseph Clark, a commentator in the Review, wrote the following, Shall we meddle with politics? No. If we must mingle in the noisy crowd and shout the praises of the poor, the poor puny man who's to be raised to the pinnacle of power, no. If we must give currency to the many-voiced slanderous reports which fill the political atmosphere with clouds of mist, but we may deposit a ballot quietly in the box on behalf of freedom and as quietly give a reason therefore. So while we don't move the mechanism of the political machine as our modus operandi, 
we do drop in the ballot box those things that protect virtue and morality. Adventists of voting must vote intelligently. This is Ellen White. We cannot with safety vote for political parties. You need to understand what she's saying. What she's saying is do not align yourself as a Republican or a Democrat. Your value system may move you to vote for someone who is a Democrat or a Republican, but you do not align yourself with those individuals. You align yourself with truth as it comes to the ballot. For we do not know whom we're voting for. It is a mistake for you to link your interests with any political party and to cast your vote with them or for them. Now, my friends, to visit the topic one more time, that does not mean because the Bible has a certain sentiment for the unborn or the Bible has a certain sentiment about those that have been held in bondage or the Bible has a certain sentiment about temperance. It doesn't mean that we have no voice on that and that we can be relegated to silence and marginalized because we speak up about truth regarding those issues. But that's what the modern-day semi-religious pundits would like to do. Samuel Rutherford. You've probably not heard a lot about him. He was a theologian living in the 1600s, and he wrote a book, which you can still buy on Amazon, called Lex Rex. Lex Rex was a, a, um, it was a treatise on what it meant to live by law and not by monarchy. Lex Rex is a Latin phrase that means the law is king. It was the last book, according to Wikipedia, in 1683 from Oxford University that was burned in England. But before it was burned, it had an impact. And probably your liberty is directly related to this very concept and to this very person. Thomas Paine, for whom Ellen White has nothing really good to say, doesn't mean that he had nothing that he ever said that wasn't good, grabbed on to Rutherford's idea that the law is king. But where, say some, is the king of America? You see, they were monarchists. They were used to the royalty of Great Britain. I tell you, friend, he reigns above. Now, the he is not capitalized, but friends, it appears to me to be at least some kind of latent recognition of God. And he doth not make havoc of mankind like the royal brute of Great Britain, reference to the king. Yet that we may not appear to be defective even in earthly honors, let a day be solemnly set apart for the proclaiming of the charter, and let it be brought forth and placed on, placed on the divine law of the Word of God. What is he saying? He's saying, since we're used to pomp and circumstance and a king, let's show our people who the real king of America is, and let's bring this document that defines our liberty and our laws place it on the Bible with a crown, and we will have a little ceremony to coronate who the real king is in this new society. The king is the law. But lest any ill use afterwards arise, let the crown at the conclusion of the ceremony be demolished and scattered among the peoples whose right it is. Let a crown be placed thereon by which the world may know, so far as we, appro so far as we approve a monarchy, then in America the law is king. For as in absolute governments, the king is law, so in free countries, the law ought to be king, and there ought to be no other. Now, everybody listening to me who's never heard this before ought to at least be saying in their head, amen, because every person that holds power in America is bound by the law. Thomas Jefferson was a little sympathetic to Paine's writings, and in a letter to Robert Livingston dated 1800, he worried that republicanism in America was only skin deep. And he didn't mean the Republican Party. He meant a constitutional republic. And he was afraid that there lurked a, a monarchy masque, a hidden monarchy just below the surface. You see, there's a propensity in people and governments to go astray. It is the law that holds them bound. Now, let's do a few definitions before we go any farther. What is Christian nationalism. This is quite a debated topic these days. I want you to at least have some perspective on what it is and what it is not. Christianity Today also carried an article on what it is. When I show you this picture, it's probably the best way for me to describe what Christian nationalism is to you. I want you to notice especially, this is the barrier between the police at the Capitol and the rioters. But I want you to notice this black banner. It says, Jesus is my Savior and Trump is my President. Now, 
When Christianity seeks to hijack the political process and institute in the law a favored status for Christians, and it seeks to rewrite the dynamic of history to where manifest destiny, which is a sense of America's uniqueness, is somehow turned into a discriminating factor that benefits only Christians, that, my friends, is Christian nationalism. And while manifest destiny is a biblical concept, I want you to understand, no nation as favored as this one. The sun of blessings has shown on this nation like no others in all of time. This experiment with rule by law and rule by citizenship is a unique thing. Christian nationalism identifies the nation with God's will and action in the world, and it conflates, which means it brings together, makes them equal national and Christian identity. So, this is only a Christian nation. No, friends. It has never been a Christian nation except for when it was a Christian nature and culture and that most of its people believed in the Word of God. It is only in that context that you can call this a Christian nation. And by the way, last night, someone sent me a 17-minute video. It was an interview with John MacArthur and John Piper. And by the way, you'll be interested to know, if you didn't know already, John MacArthur um, has the radio program Grace to You, and he pastors the Grace Church there in the California area. He got multiple fines and multiple jail sentences for not abiding by some of the public health laws that were going on there. The county has dismissed all of those, paid all of his legal fees. They didn't want anything to happen in court. But while I was listening to that interview last night, MacArthur feels like we are now a pagan nation. And I would say by way of culture, it's more true than we might like to admit. But the truth of the matter is, national identity and Christian identity are not the same thing, and the Christian church defines its distinctiveness in the power and presence of God, not through the mechanism of political machinery. Christian nationalism gives moral cover for actions, even unseemly ones, taken in pursuit of political goals. So, Here's an explanation. Those who hold to a Christian nationalistic view assume a religious duty in defending their beliefs in regard to the nation. So many of those who stormed the U.S. Capitol felt quite natural in holding up, quote, Jesus 2020 and Jesus saves banners. They believed their actions were a defense of the nation and therefore sanctioned by God. I hope nobody listening to me here today feels that is true, for they trampled on the laws that make provision for appropriate dissent and protest. And people were wounded and hurt, and the sense of what constitutes public, proper expression was violated. Now, let's move on. Christian nationalism takes an idol of the nation. The country becomes interchangeable object of worship. We believe we serve God by serving the country. Well, at some level, we do serve God by serving the country, but not the way they project. So now you know what Christian nationalism is. So now I'm going to explain some of the measures that describe this sermon and title. Sarepta M.I. Henry. This lady was fairly high up in the Women's Christian Temperance Union. She was the superintendent of evangelical work. What you need to know about Miss, Mrs. Henry was that she became a Seventh-day Adventist, and she was a personal friend of Ellen White. What you also need to know, if you've not refreshed yourself on the history of Adventism, is that Adventists were not only abolitionists, so they wanted slavery to be done away with in law, they were also prohibitionists, so they wanted the liquor in the saloons closed and the access to liquor greatly restricted. Now, if you were a woman in the late 1800s, you had no rights, virtually. You couldn't own property, which meant that you couldn't easily divorce, which meant that if you had a drunkard husband and he come, came home and he beat on you and he traumatized the kids, there was almost no recourse for you. Now, if anybody listening to me has a problem with addictions, please take good hope in Jesus. But at one point in time in the history of this country, three-fourths of the people, didn't matter what political stripe they were of, believed that hard spirits should be abolished. Seventh-day Adventists believed the same thing. And by the way, also as a little historical vignette, 
Finally, in about 1920, when abolition was voted, we tend to think that it was a, a great win for, for health and temperance. In reality, the personal income tax had come into being, I think, 1913, and the government was finally in a place where it was willing to allow prohibition, and prohibition went away because in the early 1930s, the personal income tax due to the Depression got so low that they wanted the tax money back from selling liquor. It wasn't just Al Capone and living down the road here, you know, at the end of uh, Kephart. It was dynamics of money. And, of course, that money has a corrupting influence all along the way. So, Sarepta and Mrs. White are friends. Now, there is another lady you need to know about in regards to the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and that is Frances Willard. And Frances Willard is a Christian nationalist. And Ellen White knows that Miss Henry and Miss Willard will be working together. And Mrs. White is going to give some advice. And what I want you to see is how these are not simple, nice little things where we say, Adventists believe in the separation of church and state. Well, you're exactly right. When it comes to the government supporting the church, we believe no. But when it comes to the church affecting civil society, we believe yes. The problem is, is that now we have a Seventh-day Adventist that's emerged and immersed in a dynamic that relates to the actual political machinations or movements of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, local, state, national, worldwide, has one vital organic thought, one all-observing purpose, one underlying enthusiasm, and that is Christ shall be this world's king. I want you to hear Christian nationalism all through this. Yea, verily, this world's king in its realm of cause and effect, king of its court, its camps, its commerce, king of its colleges and cloisters, king of its customs and its constitutions. Let's keep going. This is the president. She's writing, the kingdom of Christ must enter the realm of law through the gateway of politics. So Christian men to, today take their ideal of Christ in government, hurl it into the ranks of his foes, and hasten on to regain it by rallying for the overthrow of saloon politics and the triumph of the Christian at the polls. That's Frances Willard. She is undoubtedly a Christian nationalist who believes that her organization is to transform United States governance through the political process and make sure that this world, this nation is the equivalent of Christ's identity and the national idea, identity, the identity of the church and the identity of the government one and the same. The National Reform Movement, exercising the power of religious legislation, this is Ellen White writing now, will, when fully developed, manifest the same intolerance and oppression that had prevailed in past ages. Human councils then assumed the prerogatives of deity, crushing under their despotic power, liberty of conscience, imprisonment, exile, and death followed for those who opposed their dictates. What did you just read? What you read is, is that Ellen White understood where the direction of the women's Christian temperance reform movement was going. That's important because of the advice she's about to give to her dear sister, Sarepta Henry. Ellen White knows where it's headed. What does she say? Well, this is commentary. With respect to the WCTU, it's interesting that Ellen White also counseled cooperation with them as a means not only of advancing temperance, but also as a means of blunting their theocratic tendencies. Let's look at the specific vice. I thank the Lord with heart and soul. She's writing this to Sarepta Henry. I thank the Lord with heart and soul and voice that you have been a prominent and influential member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. For 20 years, I have seen that the light would come to the women's workers in temperance lines. But with sadness, I have discerned that many of them are becoming politicians and that against God. What's the important point for us to notice here? It's that Sister Henry, who occupies this high-up role in the organization, is actually encouraged to stay in it. And God, through Ellen White, the prophet, is thankful that she is there because she is buffering some of their theocratic and nationalistic attempts. They enter into questions, that is the WCTU, and debates and theories that they have no need to touch. Christ said, I am the light of the world, and he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Lord, I fully believe, is leading you that you may keep the principles of temperance clear and distinct in all their purity in connection with the truth for these last days. 
So glad, my sister, that you did not sever your connection with the Women's Christian Temperance Union. You may have to sever this connection, but not yet, not yet. Hold your place. In other words, though this organization had beast-like tendencies, there was a Seventh-day Adventist converted in the journey of the Women's Kiss Christian Temperance Union, converted to Seventh-day Adventism, holding high position, and the prophet is saying, don't abandon your spot just yet. Try to buffer them. Try to make this work for the right thing. Speak the words given you by God, and the Lord will certainly work with you. You may see many things you do not approve of, but do not fail nor be discouraged. I hope and pray that you may be clothed daily with the righteousness of Christ. The light's been given me that we are not to stand aloof from them. I want to say that again. We are not to stand aloof from them with all their beast-like tendencies. But while there is to be no sacrifice of principle on our part, as far as possible, we are to unite with them in laboring for temperance reforms. Now, abolishing the dynamic of alcohol in our culture in the 1880s was a controversial subject. And for our prophet to take a position on this and our church to take a position was going to guarantee that some of the people that might be open to hearing the three angels' message weren't going to hear it because present truth right then was the abolition of the liquor trade. I just don't want that to be lost. Resolved, this is 1865, one of our church governance moments, that in our judgment, the act of voting when exercised in behalf of justice, humanity, and right is in itself blameless and may be at sometimes highly proper, but that the casting of any vote shall strengthen the cause of such crimes as intemperance, insurrection, and slavery we regard as highly criminal in the sight of heaven. But we would deprecate any partition, participation in the spirit of party strife. I want you to sense what she's saying. Involve yourself to shape the culture of the nation through its laws, but do not align yourself with the political parties of the day. This, friends, is the challenge. And the interesting reflex in regards to all this for those who might not want to take a stand is to try to destroy the voice of Adventism in principle, precept, and practice today as it was over 100 years ago to speak truth to power. And if it looks like you're sounding like a Democrat or it looks like you're sounding like a Republican, so let it be. We're speaking to the issues of truth, not aligning ourselves through the political machinery. We are voting in quietness and carefulness and speaking with dignity and carefulness when we should and when we must. But we don't believe the political machinery is the solution. But exercising civil liberties, civil rights, and civil responsibilities is indeed a God-given responsibility in a free country. Now, I'm going to take you to a camp meeting. It happened in 1881 in July. James White is 60 years old. He will be dead in six weeks. I just want you to get a sense of what's going on. Perhaps he was too fragile to be there. I don't know. But I'm going to take you into a camp meeting in which the Iowa Conference of Seventh-day Adventists will hold a business meeting. And I'm going to show you some things. And I want you to think about them. An action taken at the Iowa camp meeting resolved that we express our deep interest in the temperance movement now going forward in this state. Resolved that we instruct all our ministers to use their influence among our churches with the people at large to induce them to put forth every effort, every consistent effort by personal labor and the ballot box in favor of the prohibitionary, prohibitory amendment of the Constitution which the Friends of Temperance are seeking to secure. Now, I just want you to stare at that for a few minutes before the slide disappears. Because it's actually saying that in this conference business meeting, we're instructing all our ministers to put use their influence among the churches and with the people to induce them to put forth every consistent effort at the ballot box. That's what I'm doing today. I do it without embarrassment. I do it with perfect peace and hopefully Holy Spirit power to compel you to understand our history and to know that Adventists have always been in the forefront of moral issues at the ballot box without aligning themselves with a political party. This is where we're at. But it gets a little bit more direct than that. So, in the name of Adventism over 100 years ago, all of our pastors should probably be doing what some of our pastors are doing in this present moment. Now, some disagreed with the clause that called for action at the ballot box. 
and they urged it to be taken out. So this whole dynamic of what it means to be an Adventist Christian without being swallowed up by political process has always been active in our ranks. Ellen White, who was attending this camp meeting, had retired for the night, but she was called to give her counsel. Now, I need to tell you, she had spoken through a rainstorm without a PA system. She was quite fatigued. She had gone back to her tent, taken a bath, gotten her pajamas on, and gone to bed. She may have been asleep. But because this was so controversial, they sent somebody to her tent to wake her up and say, please come back and talk to us. So I dressed and, I, and found I was to speak to the point of whether our people should vote for prohibition. I told them yes and spoke for 20 minutes. Let's go a little farther. The issue under discussion was on the matter of voting for prohibition. 26 years later, G.B. Starr, laboring in Australia, that's George Burt Starr, was confronted with a similar question. Now, he's going to reference back to an event that happened at that camp meeting. Here's what it is. He called to mind how Ellen White at the camp meeting related a dream in which she seemed to be in a large gathering where the temperance movement was being discussed. A fine-looking man with pen in hand was circulating a temperance pledge, but no one would sign it. As the visitor was leaving, he turned and he said, God designs to help the people in a great movement, to help the people in a great movement on this subject. He also designed that you as a people should be the head and not the tail in the movement. But now the position you have taken will place you at the tail. You see, it appears that throughout the, the, the decades of our existence as a church, we find ourselves always just a tad bit cautious about how we interface in a free society. And this dream was given to Ellen White, which was related there at that same place. But we're not done with what she has to say. Shall we vote for prohibition, she asked. Yes, to a man, everywhere, she replied. And perhaps I shall shock, shock some of you if I say, if necessary, vote on the Sabbath day for prohibition if you cannot at any other time. Now I'm here to tell you, she was not working the political machinery but she was allowing Christians to be salt and light in their day and age because drunkards beating on their wives and their children was a moral issue. Now, when we think of which moral issue, I'd like for you to ask yourself this question. Of the Ten Commandments, which one would the temperance issue address? Would it not be this one? And you don't need much of a primer for me to remind you that the sixth one says, thou shall not what? Kill. We might need to brush up on that. Prayer meeting, by the way, is dealing with the Ten Commandments. I invite you all out. Thou shall not kill is the word. The shortening of life, the diminishment of the quality of life, the traumatizing of young people's lives. If there was a way to link temperance movement with the commandments of God, and the morality and the virtuousness or lack thereof of a society, it's through this commandment. Jesus told us that the enemy of God is a murderer from the beginning, and while Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly, how can the unborn have this blessing of abundant life if, if we cut it short before it exists outside the womb? I want you to know something. We have fallen asleep while our once Christian culture has drifted into a pagan experience where we major in our rights and we minor in our responsibilities and two people can have sex together and produce life and then in an act of also lack of commitment and convenience, they can extinguish the life. And I wanna know how that's moral. And since it's on our ballot on Tuesday, October 3 is Proposal 3, I wanna know why we should be silent. We should not. We must, as a people, arouse and cleanse the camp of Israel. Licious, licentiousness, unlawful intimacy, and only practices are coming in among us in a large degree. Listen, friends. She's writing. And I've got the ellipsis there, the dot, 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 dot. But I'm here to tell you, she's also addressing pastors. The problem in some locations in our denomination got so bad that there was an adultery plague going on in our church. A little bit like the licentious, pornographic, fornicatious society we live in now. 
We are in danger of becoming a sister to fallen who? Could we say the word Babylon together? One, two, three. Babylon. We've been told not to call the church Babylon. And you know, before preparing this sermon, I had never read this phrase before. But I'm here to tell you it got so bad that Ellen White would say, unless things change, we're not babbling. But we might be a little too closely related. You see, a child should have the protection of a man committed to a woman before he's brought or she's brought into the world. You see, a child should get the right to live after she or he is brought into this world. And no one should let the voiceless go without voice. For indeed, I wish I had a little plastic model of what a 12-week-old little baby looks like because they've got all their toes and they've got all their fingers, even though they might not weigh as much as a nickel. Somehow it seemed to be okay. I guess because the Supreme Court said so. And maybe now it looks like it ought to be decided by the people in the state of Michigan with a ballot proposal that wants to, co wants to couch the dynamics of this vote always, always only in the name of freedom for the bearer of the baby, not for the baby itself. Now, you need to understand if you live in Michigan or you're watching from Michigan, I believe from my research that more money has been spent on this ballot proposal number three than on the whole gubernatorial race. It's pretty close. But I want you to understand who's paying for it on two sides. The amendment completely paints the idea of liberty for the mother, but not liberty for the baby. $57 million. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. This is what the Constitution would say if the proposal is voted yes. This proposal, for those who believe in the Sixth Commandment and the laws of morality, needs to be voted no. That's what the Bible says. Who's supporting it? Well, most of all, reproductive freedom for all. Well, the problem with this ballot is that uh, there'll be no actual reproduction in the sense of another life appearing, at least outside the womb. But I want you to see who's for it. The American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan, part of their clientele is not unborn babies. I just need to tell you that. Uh, human rights campaign, they also don't speak for the voiceless, those who have never yet cried or said mama or papa. Planned Parenthood, um, it's supported, let's go a little farther here, uh, Proposal 3 would allow the state to regulate abortion after fetal viability, which would be defined as a point in pregnancy where there is a significant likelihood of a fetus's sustained survival outside of the uterus without the application of extraordinary medical uh, procedures. In the Roe v. Wade determination, that's 28 weeks. I need you to know that since preaching this sermon at first service, I've had one father come and tell me that one of our members was born at 25 weeks, and when they're in the community, they worship with us sitting in a pew, all right? And I need you to also know that I had another member tell me that two generations before, during the Great Depression, their grandfather, who was an actual Adventist minister, tried to abort their father. Fortunately, it didn't work for this member not only sits in our church and sat in it this morning, but teaches a number of our young pastors how to rightly divide the Word of God. But in the Depression era, as the third child, his grandpa was attemptedly aborted. Fortunately, it failed. The Open Society Policy Center. This is a George Soros network. Now, George Soros is the boogeyman of all things evil and dark. But if you want some very unpleasant research, go ahead and find out why he has the reputation. Because if you can imagine what the words open society mean in regards to morality, you'll read things and see things you never really want running around inside your head. He has funded... When you look at the funding for this, he has funded more than one of these political action committees which are funding this. It's dark, very dark. You can see here how the funding lines up. 
45 million dollars spent on trying to get ballot three passed. And by the way, there's people sending money from all around the country to make sure Michigan gets this ballot passed. Abortion on demand. And there's only 17 million dollars that's been raised in opposition to it. Let's see who opposes it. The Catholic Diocese of Lansing, the Catholic Diocese of Saginaw, Grand Rapids Right to Life, Michigan Catholic Conference, Knights of Columbus, we might as well put Catholic with that too, and Right to Life Michigan. Personally, I think it would be probably very proper if we could be the head and not the tail on this as well. And if Ellen White could encourage Sister Henry to stay in the WCTU, even though it had beast-like tendencies, I'm suspecting that Catholics and Adventists could agree that commandment number six still shapes a healthy, functional society. And by the way, there are a number of people that are part of that fold which will hear the voice to come out of her, my people. The Catholics believe in the Ten Commandments, although they've changed them. And the Adventists believe in the Ten Commandments and try to keep all of them. It's going to be a battle in the end, but in the present moment, the only people really standing up, and by the way, this man, Mike Shirky, he's the Senate Majority Leader. He sat right there in the second seat from the front. This man's been in our church last year when he had the Cohesion, uh, COVID coercion and conscience seminar, he sat right there. Doesn't make him good or bad, but he sure wanted to hear about coercion in the age of COVID. I'm not going to spend too much time there. Ellen White never changed her position on temperance. In an article written for the Ryu just a year before her death, she reemphasized the responsibility of every citizen to exercise every influence within his power, including his vote, to work for temperance and virtue. We are in no wise to become involved in political questions, that is, through the political machinery. Yet it is our privilege to take our stand decidedly on all questions relating to temperance reform. There is a cause for the moral paralysis upon our society. This is in your bulletin. You ought to take this one home and put it where you can read it. There's a cause for the moral paralysis in our society. Our laws sustain an evil which is sapping their very foundations. You want to hear who gets an abortion? Just going to bring it up. Let's go over the statistics. All right. Let's move away from needing my urgent ballot. The Guttmacher Institute anonymously surveyed 1,209 post-abortion women. And these are the reasons they gave. One half of 1% were victims of forced sexual encounter. 3% had fetal health problems. 4% had physical health problems. Now, the rest of these aren't going to sound quite so compelling to where even an ethical discussion about the morality of these two competing needs, the life of the mother and the life of the baby. 4% it would interfere with their education or career, so abort the baby. 7% were not mature enough to raise a child. That's serious. That's sober. It'd be nice if a mom and dad were in place with some rules on the children. 8% don't want to be made a single mother. 19% are done having children. 23% can't afford a baby. 25% are not ready for a child. And 6% other. I don't know how many of you are rapid calculating statisticians, but over 90-some percent of those who get abortions, it's what we call elective. But in the state of Florida, they keep track of everybody that gets an abortion. And in 2020, that was 74,868 people. One-tenth of one percent resulted from an improper incestuous relationship. One and a half percent sexual assault. Two percent, the woman's life was endangered. And 1%, there was a serious fetal abnormality. 1.48%, the woman's physical health was threatened by the pregnancy. 1.88%, the woman's psychological health was threatened by the pregnancy. 20.4%, the woman aborted for a social or economic reason. And 74.9%, no reason was given. I'm afraid the two line up. So when someone wants to pull the card about the exception to the rule, 
Make sure we make the rule to fit the general immorality of our age, and we can work out the exceptions to the rule in the proper legislative process. This cannot be. Every individual exerts an influence in society. In our favored land, every voter has some voice in determining what law shall control the nation. Lex, Rex, the law is king. That's why Tuesday matters so much. Should not that influence and that vote be cast on the side of temperance and virtue? Now, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you before I read it. There have been moments when Adventism's hands-off feel about church and state is confused and now properly understood. And what she's going to strive here is the glee of certain political people who think the Adventists won't vote. That's what you're reading about. Men of intemperance, that's the opposite of temperance, have been in the office today in a flattering manner expressing their approbation, which means gladness and joy, of the course of the Sabbath keepers not voting and expressed hopes that they will stick to their course and, like the Quakers, not cast their vote. What does she say? Same quote. Satan and his evil angels are busy at this time, and he has workers upon the earth. May Satan be disappointed is my prayer. There's an article in the Adventist Review of late dealing with Christian nationalism. It makes some good points, and it has some gross errors in it. But there is a line out of the article that I'm going to go ahead and grab. And it's this one. Silence is now dereliction of duty. It's time for the voiceless to have a voice through those who understand the law that gives liberty, including life. Jesus said, I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick. I was hungry. I was naked. Is it too much of a stretch to suggest I had no voice and you spoke for me? You see, my friends, while we are not to jump into a political party and mar our ability, we are not to be afraid of what somebody calls us when we stand for virtue and morality, even if they want to call us a dreaded Democrat or a dreaded Republican. My identity is not in politics, and I reject all labels from my friends, colleagues, and employers that would try to suggest that it is. My identity is in the living Christ, and it is through His heart, in the, His presence in the heart of His people that will transform culture one person at a time. But in America, we have no king but the law, lex rex, and we expect the law to put some measure of protection in place for those who cannot protect themselves. There's a story told in the book of Exodus, chapter 1. You need to know something. We're living in the hour of judgment, and the devil, as if he's flaunting that, is doing what he's always done because judgment was coming on Egypt. And you know what they started doing? It's not a coincidence. Judgment's coming, and the babies are going to pay the price. Throw all those babies in the river, but there's two little ladies whose names will go down in the hall of fame. As the head and not the tail, Shipra and Pua. And they even get called in before the Pharaoh himself. And the Bible tells us he blessed them because they weren't going to kill those babies. You come down to the days of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, it says, Because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place. He's talking about Judah. And they've burned sacrifices, sacrifices to their gods, and neither they nor their fathers of the kings of Judah, things that had never been known in the history. And because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent, listen to the next verse, and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded to spoke, nor did it even enter my mind. Three times that sentiment is in the book of Jeremiah. The sword of judgment is above the nation. And of course, we know when Jesus came, in an attempt to rob the world of deliverance, 
The babies were destroyed. How many of those babies in the womb might stand in the ranks of the army of Christ had they been brought into homes of commitment, nurtured in the admonition of the Lord, and were men and women filled with the Holy Spirit? I want you to think about these things. You see, friends, judgment is coming. We're living in the hour of judgment. And Seventh-day Adventist people have always been in the forefront of virtue and morality at the ballot box. And this idea that it somehow dirties our hands or sullies our reputation because we stand for what is right is completely wrong. And it's imperative to me that you understand Adventist history and teaching straight from the prophet's mouth and we see in the course of scripture, it's not a civil right to take a life any more than it was a civil right automatically. If society decides it's not a civil right to drink, then a law is made, the Volstead Act, which gave power to a constitutional amendment and stopped the liquor traffic. Some people today say abortion's a civil right. It's not a civil right if society decides it's not civil and it's not moral. And by that same logic, some of my Seventh-day Adventist friends would have made Ellen White on the wrong side of moral history when she stood against the right for you to have a beer when you came home from church. I want you to think about this. I don't want it to be easy. I want you to go out of here and wrestle and pray. We need a more mature Adventism that fits a 21st century postmodern society we're living in where we don't sacrifice the reputation of Christ for favor and we certainly are willing to endure the scorn and the mockery because we stand up for those who have no voice. I'm here to tell you, I'll try to be a little discreet about this, but when you look at my mom and dad's marriage and my arrival in the world, I'm the firstborn. You figure something out. And I'm awfully glad that it's in the pro Roe versus Wade days, not that my mother would have. But for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. God is the great giver of life. It is sacred. God is the great forgiver. If the statistics are true, one in four, one in five women in America have had an abortion. If that's you, accept the forgiveness of God and join the ranks of protecting those who are yet to get to breathe outside the womb. This morning, I'm here to tell you, our closing hymn has kind of fallen into a bit of disrepute. Some people consider it to be part of a almost colonial oppressiveness, but it might do us good to look at it. Could we turn there to number 647? I want to point a few things out. We're going to sing it. I chose it for a certain reason, but I had somebody else point something else out to me. We're not going to sing it yet. We'll sing it when I'm done here. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath have stored. This was the marching song of many Christians in the age of abolition of slavery. But the phrase that I especially chose it from is the next part. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. But go a little farther. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before what? Is it in the present tense or the past tense or the future tense? It's present tense. There is a judgment going on and how we choose to relate to actions that require a bit of moral courage and purposeful fortitude is an actual living test of truth. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. It's in the now, friends. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. His truth is marching on. You see, friends, on Tuesday, there is a proposal that will enshrine in the Constitution the same destruction of life that's been operative in our system for the last 50 years. While that proposal is not going to enshrine a law if it fails, it will enshrine a right if it passes without the ability to amend and direct. For a number of years, I was on a Constitution and Bylaws Committee. 
And we had one rule at every constituency meeting, and that is you don't amend the Constitution from the floor. It always goes through a process. This is good admin as polity, governance. If you're registered to vote, and you can save the life of the unborn by voting no on Proposal 3, God forbid that the voiceless would not have a voice in the ballot box through you or through me on behalf of their awesome creator who died that they might live. May God help us as we pray and consider what this means in Michigan, what it means to us, and what it means to the unborn. Let's stand as we sing our closing hymn.